the violence of language is even more than passing a law that causes violence on the border, but it's the tiny kind of atemporal things that exist in each of us living within those structures too. For a lot of us, you know, um, who grew up without like the language of our families, there is a kind of hurt or the feeling of something missing. But I, I don't want it to be, and I didn't want it to be like a judgment cast upon my mom either, because maybe that's me thinking of things from my like Western or US American point of view. I, I need to be able to kind of understand her reality of it too. It's it's a difficult thing to try to both understand that and then like not not feel the hurt in my own life. I'm enjoying summer and everything is very intense. I I've got lots of books going, lots of things I'm writing, lots of things I'm talking about with people. <laughs> yeah, you you always do. You always have your hand in so many creative honeypots, and I really admire that about you. Um, I mean, I remember we would go out uh, after our classes uh, at, at you know, with like Sharon Olds or something, reading these like beautiful poems of Bianca's. And then we'd be um, at a, a restaurant, that, that restaurant that had um, paper tablecloths. So you'd just be like drawing all over the tablecloth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got nervous, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Even after so, so many times, huh? Um, oh God, yes. That's heartening because then it's not just me. Oh no. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Paul Lava Ceballos is the author of Banana Bracket, winner of the AWP Donald Hall Prize for Poetry and the Poetry Society of America's Norma Faber First Book Award, and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His collaborative chapbook, Banana, We Pilot the Blood, shares pages with Quentin Baker, Christina Sharp, and Torquasi Dyson. Banana reveals the extrative relationship the United States has with the Americas and its peoples through poetic portraits of migrants, family, and memory. The title poem is part poetry, part reportage that traces the history of bananas in Latin America using only found text from sources such as history books, declassified CIA documents, and commercials. The book includes collage, Ecuadorian decimas, sonnets, and a long poem interspersed with photos and the author's mother's bilingual idioms. Traversing language and borders, global and personal histories, traditional and invented forms, this book guides us beyond survival to love. Paul Hlava Ceballos has received fellowships from Canto Mundo Artist Trusts and the Poets House. He's been featured on the Poetry Magazine podcast, Seattle's The Stranger, and his work has been translated into Ukrainian. He currently lives in Seattle, where he practices echocardiography. Um, I had the, the total pleasure of being, I think, in every single one of my poetry workshops 
in graduate school at NYU with Paul. I think I think we hit every class together. Maybe not. Were you in Yusef Kuminyaka's class? Yeah. Yes. Okay, I wasn't in that class. Um, but I have known Paul for many years, um, and we had many a night as we were just talking about eating from the free, free, in quotes, basket free, free basket <laughs> of bread from poor Cafe Lou. Um, and, you know, reading Palms on the Fire Escape, uh, my apartment in Bushwick with Kathy Che and Levi Rubeck and Solma Sharif, um, the mustache poets crew, we called ourselves for a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> for a reason I have no recollection. <laughs> yeah, it was so hipster sounding. Um, but we were, we were having a blissful time in 2008 um, in New York City. And here we are, 2023, talking about your first and beautiful and award-winning book. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm so excited to be here. I love the podcast. I'm a big fan. And it's it's really been an honor to kind of see your work too, you know? I felt like um, I get an inside peek into, you know, first your poems in the craft classes and as, as I was reading them and then seeing your first book and kind of following your career even from afar when we weren't you know in communication that much mm-hmm. yeah. um, and it's it's really been a delight to to see your career and your amazing books and art one after the other kind of come out um, I feel really lucky and actually I feel like I learned a lot you know kind of being in this place um, as you mentioned you and Kathy Levi, Solmaz, all, all of our crew, Michael Margarita. Um, but like being being able to see your work and as it's grown and changed along with you and all of our other friends, I think kind of like made me as a poet, you know? Mm, yeah. Like I that, didn't know what that, I wanted to be. <laughs> that poetry coterie, you know, I, I feel like that is the reason that is one of the biggest reasons to go to grad school, I think, is to just to make your your crew that you can evolve with and be inspired by. And even if you all disperse across the country and world and are working on your projects, I don't know, like we still keep hopping on like group texts and like celebrating <laughs> one another's achievements. <laughs> Thanks to Kathy, I feel like. Mm. But um, but uh, same, just like I love, I love that we've stayed, you know, this core uh and i too i'm very inspired um so your 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 full length, first full-length book banana and and it's followed by a bracket uh came out this year from university of pittsburgh press and was the winner of the donald hall prize in poetry chosen by Ilya kaminsky you've arranged it in three sections throughout the book there's an element of speaking in and to the lives of others. And there's okay. While there's an importance politically and historically to the book, it quietly and more directly towards the end illuminates a personal and emotional and familial landscape. Um, I wanted to take the section, I mean the book section by section as we, as we talk. Uh, So, in section one, El Hido, is that, is that, I thought it was Elegy, but then 
I don't think it's I think it's the chosen one in Spanish. Yeah, elegido. Um, elegido. But I, you know, I kind of did that on purpose. I like this false translation because so many of the poems in this section are elegies, including the first, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. most in the first couple pages. Um, so, thinking of that, I'm writing elegies to um, these like migrants or these children who, um, you know, were killed by um, border patrol. Um, but, you know, that they've also kind of been um, elected or chosen um, as, as representatives, maybe uh, within the text, but kind of within like a, a larger political structure of mm. what it means to be uh, American. They enter a type of archive that we use as a definition for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I just like how the word sounded. <laughs> Yeah, it's beautiful. And yeah, it well, well, I like the idea of going down the rabbit hole of the, of the idea of the chosen one, but I think the elegy is more apt in terms of what you're doing. Um, and that is speaking for the dead, um, speaking for those who cannot speak anymore. Um, and they have been silenced by, as you said, uh, police and the border patrol. I, of course, would love to hear about what compelled you, besides the obvious, <laughs> um, to uh, to speak these elegies, to speak in these voices, in these poems, as the opening to this book. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh... It's, I, I don't like necessarily to think of it as I'm speaking like for them, but maybe like with them or alongside of them. Mm. Um, and really, I just kind of wanted to honor some people, honor some people who I didn't see being represented in media um, or, you know, that would come across media as maybe a blip or a blurb. Uh, and I think being in, you know, um, like whatever circles that I might have been in at the time that I was writing these, say, 2014, 2016, um, my, like, you know, social media, my emails were, were full of uh, this real violence that was happening to migrants at the border. And it was something that was very, like, personal and striking to me, my, like, family also being Latina migrants. Um, but then, you know, I would kind of go out into the world or go on social media and it, it was kind of like none of this existed. It existed in my world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or the list serves that I was part of or something. But then, right, um, right. yeah, not not necessarily like, you know, when I went to work and it just it, it hurt so bad because I saw that same violence. It felt like that same violence was being repeated in really kind of quiet or subtle ways um, when I was out in the world at work, you know. Yeah. Um, the way even just some of my coworkers would be listened to or not listened to. Um, and I, I kind of kept seeing these uh, tiny fractals um, that it became a little bit of an obsession that I wanted to return to these people and just research. Most of the book came out of research. And so kind of the, the hurt of 
their deaths caused me to go down rabbit holes where I'd read about them and read about them. Every article that I could find, um, every blog post, um, and then uh, compare maybe those to the Border Patrol statements. Um, and eventually that language kind of came to me by, mm-hmm. by reading like the articles about them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love this speaking for, I mean, sorry, speaking with others. And of course, like this, there's this fluidity of self when one starts to do that. And I liked the more that I was thinking about it, the more I saw it as the breaking down of the borders within the self, even the very self. And the word neighbor runs throughout this whole book and strongly in the beginning. And I felt that that word neighbors really gets at an important tension here in this way. There's divides between neighbors just as there is a divide between North and South America. But there's also community within neighborhoods. And your poem, Egyptian Cotton Elegy for a Neighbor, you write uh, in the back of the book, was a poem um, ripped from personal experience you had. So while you're doing all all this research of um, things from the news that are very far away, um, there's also things that are happening right outside your your door and right on the since you were a child. Can you? I'm wondering if you could read that poem um, and talk and talk a bit about it. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned this poem too because this is one of the most personal poems I feel in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. And certainly in the first section, it's one of the only personal poems. I tried to kind of keep the self out of it, myself. Yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you know, I, I was, I, I I was, I don't know, I was almost surprised, like opening the book and like the first poem, uh, we start very zoomed out with Genesis. Uh, And then the, and then as we go on, it's clear that the, yes, this, the self is, is quite invisible and the, the voice is very strong. But when I say you were speaking for with like, you really embody and, and move towards giving voice to the others. Um, but yes, of course me, I'm always like, I would, I, so when I did get to Egyptian cotton, I felt, I felt you come in and in a different way. I mean, of course you're in the other poems too, but this, yeah, this does have a directness. Section. Yeah, I guess like gen- starting with Genesis too. You and I are are thinking about some some similar things here in our our yeah. two books totally, <laughs> that came totally. out, you know, around the same time, um, but maybe entering it very different ways. It's hard not to start with the beginning of the world, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's right there. Like, yeah, like here, I just made a little universe. Why don't you step in? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Egyptian cotton elegy for a neighbor. Mornings before helping her on the school bus, Dan would kneel in front of Melly and smooth a checkered blanket across her lap with careful open-palmed sweeps, so each blue and green square aligned with the wheelchair's armrests. When the new neighbor was shot, police didn't come. I watched from my bedroom window as he lay beneath the streetlight asking no one in particular for a glass of water. Sirens grew louder and then quieter in the distance holding the bloody part in, 
A glass of water, please, to street lights, doors, and cracked Venetian blinds. The whoosh of faraway cars, low planes. And then, running across the street in a crouch, Dan pushed a cup into the man's hand, checkered blanket thrown over his shoulders. Mm. And I could read the note for that, too, if you like. Sure. Um, so then flipping back to the note, this is actually one of the largest notes in the book. Um, yeah, it is. Egyptian cotton elegy for a neighbor. The shooting in reference occurred in 1993 Moreno Valley, California, at the border of Riverside and Dry Desert Hills. It was not the only time as a child that I witnessed one of my neighbors get shot, but it was the only time that the shooter was not a police officer. After hearing the shots, my parents sent me to bed, but my bedroom window faced back on the unfinished street of a new development of pop-up tract houses. Our neighbor to the right stumbled out onto the street from his back fence and collapsed below my window. Dan lived to our left. The following day, he and another neighbor told our family that they had also called 911 when they heard the shots, which makes for at least three homes calling for emergency services. Slow emergency response times have long been a complaint within Black and Latinx neighborhoods. For example, in 2021, the city of Chicago settled a lawsuit which claimed that residents in minority neighborhoods waited approximately twice as long for police dispatch after 911 calls. Overlapping with this, in some cases, maybe a 2018 study in the Journal of American Medicine, which says poorer neighborhoods have a 10% longer ambulance response time than wealthier mm. ones. I spent the long evening watching my neighbor through the blinds, calling forth an ambulance with all my might, but it was two hours before one arrived. Police never came. Language is only sufficient if the person on the other end is listening. My neighbor emerged onto the street, wounded, and collapsed there for two hours. I am still at my window, watching him call out for water, close enough to hear the shots from the relative safety of my room. Hmm. I'm so glad you read that because I loved that part so much when I read it, that language is only sufficient if the person on the other end is listening. And it's really, I mean, it really, it opens a lot of, uh, of, uh, of course, doors of inquiry in terms of how to get people to listen, how to get that person on the other end to, to be someone who's hearing what you're saying. Cause if you're just saying and saying and saying, and they're not listening, then it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how good you say it. Um, so of course, language is dependent upon the other dependent upon someone on the other end of the relational. Um, and language is also so important. Like, for our life literally to live um and what i also you know in the meta conversation here of course is that you're writing a poem in language and you're trying and it's as if you're trying to find a way to get people to listen to the other end you know and i i felt that so strongly and felt so grateful for it and this I'm still at my window watching him call out for water. I mean, it just goes to show how those sorts of witnessing of, you know, certain things in our lives that haunt us in terms of memory. Um, did you, did, has this haunted you for a long time? Did you, was it time to write this mm. poem? <laughs> Well, I mean, while I was writing most of these, you know, I think, you know, it's it's worth noting what was happening kind of in the larger political sphere, right? 
um, first kind of the um, run up to the 2016 presidential elections yeah. and then the elections and then the, <laughs> the presidency and the, the vast kind of violence against people of color that um, that was based on. Uh, and, uh, you know, very specifically the way that um, like Latinos were placed in that type of violence as well. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, you know, his first speech being something against um, very specifically Mexican people coming to the United States. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that was kind of part of living was just like living in this time which feels very divorced from like the political world. Like I'm never going to meet a president. You know what I mean? <laughs> like um, I'm never going to have Aww. any kind of. <laughs> Maybe you'll be poet laureate um, one day. You'll be at the, <laughs> you'll be at the presidential dinner. Yeah, yeah. I don't, but but I know what you mean. I don't yeah. know if I'm not a material <laughs> poet laureate material, but like you know, um, being in this world that I know I have like very little control over and seeing these like really big things happen, which have actual effects on people's lives. And then there's this kind of really complicated feeling, which is like at the end of that poem, recognizing my own safety, right? Like, okay, I grew up in this neighborhood and yes, these were Latino people. And yes, I was like a young Latino kid looking out my window at this violence happening, but I was still behind my window. I was still like, what did I do after that? I went underneath my warm covers and slept and in the morning walked into the kitchen and had my, you know, um, very cheap bananas sliced into my breakfast cereal. Um, and so mm. this kind of uh, weird splitting of the mind that happens um, between knowing that I'm both like part of a violence um as one that it's directed toward, but also maybe if I'm like surviving that, you know, um, being in the United States and, you know, being able to like benefit off of whatever like gas prices or, you know, tropical fruits and, uh, you know, uh, economic system, I'm also mm -hmm. like benefiting from these violences mm -hmm. and, um, well, it's so pervasive, you don't even know how you're benefiting, but you know you are. It's so, like, we've grown up so entrenched in it. You can't, you can't live outside of it, right? Um, because, you know, at some point, you know, if we just choose not to drive, we're going to take a bus to work. We're, you know, on the streets that were built by kind of, um, you know, economy built after mm. the kind of horrors of the transatlantic slave trade, right? So, like, we're all part of this thing. Yeah. And I, I couldn't help but, like, like feel that violence and feel kind of, like, torn apart by it. Mm -hmm. And then, on one hand, feeling very distant from, you know, seeing, like, um, a story about a, a migrant who was killed at the border, but coming home and um, on my, my bike ride home, like somehow that queued up this memory where I'm just going over and over and over for hours. I can't, I'm stuck there. I can't stop thinking about this one time that I saw this person get shot um, or another time, or maybe I had a nice bike ride home, but then I came home and I saw my partner for the first time in her life, Googling, um, you know, her childhood friend who was killed by the police. Mm -hmm. um, 
15 years earlier, you know? And they're like language, like it is real, right? And mm-hmm. the violence of language is even more than like passing a law that causes violence on the border, but it's the tiny kind of atemporal things that exist in each of us living within those structures too. Yeah. And it's like, we can't, we can't get out of it. We can't flee from it. It's almost like, I don't want to be part of it. I just want to get out of it, you know, and we can't. And there's, we can sort of get sucked into hell in that way mentally and feel extremely helpless and depressed. And, um, it seems almost like what you're saying and what you're doing is like, all we can do is talk about it. All we can do is sort of bring it into the conversation as something that's, that's, that's real. I, got I mean, that. I don't want to say all we can do, but I definitely well, want to say that that's the minimum, right? <laughs> yeah. <it's> the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's the first, it's the first thing that you have to do is to say it to yourself that it's, that it's real. I mean, and, and share it with other people, like which is what the book is doing. Is this, is this language that is speaking to me and informing me about things? But it's doing it in a very certain way. It's through poetry, which is inherently relational and intimate. And so I feel very led into it as not as I'm being lectured to, not as I'm being given a news story. It's I'm being given it. It's almost like it's embodied. It's almost like what you were doing by writing the poems is embodying the information. And then I embody it by reading the book. And then we can start changing, maybe. I mean, I love that. And I'm so happy to hear that, you know, it does kind of carry that feeling as, you know, to to the listener or the reader, because that's certainly how I was experiencing it. And I think, you know, um, thinking about any kind of trauma you know, that, that somebody might have suffered. It's so interesting how very often, um, like, it's not really thought about or lived until years later or decades right. later, right? exactly, yeah. Um, you just kind of, like, carry it and you go on with your life, and then all of a sudden one day you're, like, frozen on the couch, like, unable to move. Like Yeah, oh, you're like, what the fuck that. is happening with me? Yes. <laughs> I have a chemical imbalance. <laughs> I, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so, so yeah, it's a bodily thing. It's a bodily thing. And I, you know, that's, um, you know, maybe the kind of exorcism <laughs> that I was trying to do with it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, when you think about you having this, this person live in you all this time. And I, I've had this phenomenon as well, you know, this, these things that haunt me and, I don't even realize them until one day I sort of articulated outside of myself. This thing keeps coming up in my mind and it's triggered by current events. Um, the relief of making it into a poem is palpable. It's not like it fixes anything, you know, it's not like it's gone forever, but something changes, I think. But it allows us to understand it. And I mean, that's definitely yeah. like, you know, a major step toward healing. Yeah understand it and maybe to saying well I don't understand it but I'm trying to understand it and by saying that you understand something new and then in hopes that 
the person reading it understands something too. I don't know. I mean, I would say that you and I talking about it would make you understand more about it by you talking to me. I mean, it's not like it's therapy, but like it's, it's, it's runs a similar track in terms of like when we get it out of ourselves and share it with another more can be illuminated about the experience that we didn't understand before. Um, it takes two people to think some thoughts. Um, so the second section of the book is the intense lyrical deep dive found palm around the banana industry and history found poetry as you say all these lines have been plucked from different sources historical text interviews um but it's chosen with great care and reassembled into a Paul poem uh, a made poem for sure and it's the, the second section is also the title of the book banana bracket 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 um, that bracket, of course, makes me think of Anne Carson's translation of Sappho that includes so many brackets. Um, hers aren't always left and right. Sometimes they're just left. Sometimes they're just right. Um, but what the brackets do in that book, of course, is allow for a space to stand in for what is missing, what could never be recovered, and giving emphasis to that blank space in lost history. And I think the bracket has a certain emphasis to it, too more than the parentheses it's like this first um and poetry which already is honoring the white space and what is it what is irretrievable or in ineffable uh in language is given that emptiness but here i tell me about this choice to use this punctuation mark uh as part of the title just in in first as, as we first foray into this giant section of the book. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I do want to give a shout out and say this to um, Anda Markin, uh, who was the editor of uh, the Third Thing Press uh, chapbook that I did. Uh, with okay, Baker, yeah. Beautiful book. Uh, who really kind of helped me um, refine that title and come up with that. At first, um, I was using a... Um, like a black line, kind of like a redacted line that one might find in a, uh, a document. Um, yeah, and it does have a very redacted, one of your blurbs said it was a redacted text, but it seemed like more found, but. Yeah, I mean, it starts out the first line is taken exactly, you know, from a CIA document, has that like black redacted line um, kept in it, preserved. And um, yeah, the problem I just thought with the title having that, like black and thing, um, that kind of redacted quality um, would make somebody assume that they were entering a different type of text. This is just like a kind of craft thought that, um, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't mm -hmm. want somebody to think that this was an erasure poem necessarily. Right. Okay. Um, especially with the first line having that same kind of redacted quality. Um, but I, I loved that idea of this like covered up thing. And, um, you know, the more that I thought about the poem, and it took me months and months to come up with those brackets because, yeah. you know, it, it isn't necessarily, I mean, it is something that is covered up because the people 
you know, it wasn't like an intentional choice that the kind of corporations or government was doing to like not allow those people to have certain <laughs> freedoms or uh, economic like possibilities. But um, I mean, what was happening was that um, when I tried to look for them in media, they they didn't exist. So it wasn't so much a like, you know, a dark marker kind of erasing something. It was a space. They weren't. Emptiness. They never. It, there was nothing to redact because it wasn't rec- put in. More of a ghost, yeah, um, or a haunting, and I mm-hmm. thought the brackets allow for that. It's something that's kind of closed, kind of open, um, that that almost feels like it's meant to be filled in. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, you start section. This is a real. I was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't even say this, but fuck it. Um, section two. Uh, it opens with these lines adam and eve, or these aren't the first lines but this is in the first page of the first section this is the first page of the second section adam and eve clothed themselves in banana leaves in section one of course you started with the poem genesis as we talked about and you wrote the line did adam first teach god the word simula which is seed in spanish or resource extraction I was thinking of the um, theosity, the word theosity, the idea of theosity, the vindication of the vindication of the divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil and suffering. I was thinking of how faith or God fits into this, if at all. I only, it's really not that prevalent in the book, but I paused over these two moments of adam and eve is it merely or i I don't know anything (laughs) god god go discuss Um, it could be just no um, i don't know god um sure i i I don't know um it, it it was intentional uh so yeah, and you're, you're you're such an astute reader. Thank you. Um, like I, you know, sweated over this too for like years. Honestly, beginning the first section with Genesis with Adam, the second section with Adam and Eve, kind of in a paradise. Um, the third section also begins with Genesis, and then even the last long poem, which takes up fourteen pages of the book, begins with, um, you know, like an apple tree, and so kind of each section I wanted to have. Uh, a genesis so there was this feeling of like circularity or recurrence Mm. um the way that these histories as you and i were just talking about don't end but Mm -hmm. kind of relive um throughout time cycling back in the body Mm -hmm. um kind of as one way of looking at it and then another way of looking at it um thinking about um the movement through in each section uh beginning with like a kind of um, Genesis or paradise and um, moving toward um, something natural. So each section also, I try to end on like a natural thing. I, I, I noticed that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as I was doing the research for uh, banana, eight years or so, you know, um, the first few years, I really started to see a heavy use of kind of um, language of religion and paradise 
um, as um, applied to banana workers. And there's one book in particular, which I was like so amazed when I found because it's so terrible. Um, and it, um, Frederick Upham Adams, Conquest of the Tropics, the story of the creative enterprises conducted by the United Fruit Company um, from 1914. And it's a quote unquote history book about the banana industry, which was um, funded by the United Fruit Company. In fact, um, he was like staying in the lodgings provided by the United Fruit Company when he traveled to Central America. Um, and he used a lot of like really bad language. Um, like racist or just a Oh, aggressive. It was like an aggressively racist book. It was, it's absolutely yeah. terrible. 1914 yeah. and funded by the United Fruit Company. You're like, okay, yeah, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I was, I read it all in one sitting. I couldn't put it down just because of like how bad it was. And I was like, wow. well, this is exactly what I'm trying yeah, to say about. Yeah, this is gold for your book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I started to see a kind of relationship between um, the language of Eden and uh, like a, a racist language, right? Mm, interesting. Um, when the conquistadors first arrived to the Americas, it was, um, I think, it, you know, they, they wrote that it was um, that the people had no God, right? It was like they were allowed by the crown to, you know, enact a genocide upon these people because they did not have um, the, the correct God, right? Interesting. Um, that was how they justified it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, then there was there was lots of ways they talked about, like, you know, same-sex marriages and stuff as proof of this. It's like a really kind of bleak <laughs> history. Um, but, uh, you know, thinking about the way that religion has kind of played out in the Americas as a way to enact violence, um, and right. that paradise was often also spoken about um, as something like, oh, you know, the people who like worked on these farms, how simple they were. You know, they got to like walk around and just pluck fruit from the trees was right. the type of language that he would use. How um, like Eden like. And there are these kind of um, dichotomy within a white supremacist thought between what is civilized and the city or a culture and then what is uncivilized and what is you know maybe something of the past or right this like natural body or it's like is, in it's for like a world of the dream it's like it's not this it's not this reality or something like it's not reality it's like a this sort of garden edenic place that's not civilization it's but not it's civilization not, it, it's exactly. all, but it's weird too that it's like it's not even like you could sort of think of it as like it's not even like a part of the living world. So it would you would have a lot of license to kill what it was whatever is there if you don't even think about them as like human beings in the world. Well, you know, within like this is kind of what I was like slowly beginning to understand as I read this. Um and, you know, as I read like a ton of other texts alongside this, like the the works of uh you, you know, Christina Sharp or Eduardo Galeano, is that within white supremacist thought there's the obviously wrong and horrific thing right that um you know separates like white people and you know primarily black folks and then some you know other people of color kind of spreading from that um but then there's like the second like really false and wrong thing which separates 
um, people from the environment. So, you know, there's this thought that like, there's God, and then there's human beings, and then there's nature. Right, right. And the work of white supremacy is showing that non-white people are not human beings, thus they're a part of nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so finding natural language and so much of to destruction people. has come from that to that divide from nature is like we have no respect for nature and we're going to lose this world. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. Like thinking about it from the point of view of the current climate crisis that we're in it, you're like, well, we're, we're not above nature, Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> human beings are not above nature um right so right th- this yeah. whole thinking obviously as kind of horrific and terrible as it is um is also i mean c- connected very i think intensely to um like our current state of climate collapse and like eco poetics you know which I, I kind of liked to think of this poem as as well Definitely. um uh showing maybe as the poems move forward um, ending on, on like language of, of growth and flowering as what was to me something that was very hopeful. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Um, so I love, I love how much the discussion does spread into the, um, the metaphysical and the spiritual and, but, but also, but that is, that seems sort of linked to nature too, to me. And the, but the harm that comes from um, this organized religion's use of God as a form, as a weapon um, and a justification for actions. Uh, and um, in terms of the word theosity, they don't see themselves as practicing evil. So they have no problem uh, believing in God while evil continues because they see themselves as good. Um, but moving forward, just a little, I, I, you know, we've only read one poem and we're 45 minutes in and that's just atrocious, but, um, <laughs> I talk so I, much. it's not, it's not your fault. Um, the, the poem itself is list like and a litany and there is an incredible amount of violence within it. And it reminded me so much of. Roberto Bolaño's 2666 in, I think it was section four, where it's hundreds of pages uh, in prose, list listing prose of unsolved murders of, you know, upwards, you know, hundreds of poor young Mexican women and girls in a fictional border town that's based on a real place. I thought of that, um, in terms of form, but it, I found both texts did something similar to me. And it was this sort of like the repetition and the pattern making creates, uh, uh, and the violence creates this numbing horror. Um, and it's like, what's so haunting about it is that you get this feeling like by its by its research and repetition, feeling of research and repetition of facts and yours are actually from, you know, it's not fiction. Uh, 
you it, it's almost as if it be, it becomes so real and it feel it the reality of it is so disturbing because it feels like if it wasn't listed here it's like it it isn't real you know it's it's like i feel like we were talking about this a little before where it's like you go out in the world and you're just like it's not it's not there it's not there but by making this list form this the form of the poem itself creates some kind of like disturbing pattern of realness that is so powerful and i and in terms of poetry and the psyche i'm so interested in what happens within because because this is also about history right this is also about writing history but why not just write a history book on the banana you know like why not do why not be that person why choose poetry? You know, what is what happens when you bring the historical research into a poem itself like this? What happens to the mind when 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 hearing it, when when being in it? And so why don't you read us a bunch of it? Yeah. Or you of can course. respond right away, whatever you want to do. Um, right. It's a right. long uh, section, the list of murders. How about I read a, a little bit from the beginning? No, no yeah, yeah, don't read the then, whole thing, but yeah, just um, just give us an experience of, of what you're doing in this section. Um, so to begin at the beginning, Banana, the history of the Americas. The following information has been on the labor situation in the banana zone. Adam and Eve clothed themselves in banana leaves, a swarthy savage, about to pluck his evening meal from the ripened bunch of bananas, changing valueless jungles to valuable banana farms. Black Sikatoka, also known as Black Leaf Streak, is the most economic, important leaf spot disease of bananas. Banana chlorosis is a serious bacterial wilt of banana caused by blood disease. The pathogen enters the banana finger through the flower, causing a dry rot, root, and rhizome necrosis. Wounding of banana roots by the burrowing nematode induces full virulence of the fusarium wilt to a Cavendish banana. The banana scab moth infests the inflorescence. The banana weevil bore or a corm weevil attacks the base of the pseudostem and travels upward. Spider mites mainly attack banana leaves, delaying fruit ripening and reducing yields. The company required generous amounts of extra fallow land as protection against banana disease. On 8 December 2017, Hernan Bedoya, another Afro-descendant leader from Choco, was heading home on horseback to his village. A new par paramilitary group intercepted him on a bridge and shot him 14 times, killing him. Hernan had objected to the palm oil banana plantations and note the arthroscopic banana knife. Um, just as kind of a thing while people are listening, um, every time you hear the word banana, um, we know that's a new line because every source text included the word banana. So um, that's like a cue that I'm pulling from a separate source text. I thought you were going to be like, every time you were the word banana, I get to drink. <laughs> I was like, no. Um, as I read this like next section, I, I like to do this thing, Bianca, if you'll um, indulge me. Mm -hmm. um, when I say a person's name, if you would say presente, presente, yeah, three syllables, and that means here or with us. It's a way of honoring the dead. Okay. And the people at home could join as well. Presente. 
In the morning, when the banana workers started arriving, the Gurias selected men off the bus, tied some up, killed others. One compañero, Mauro Romero, Presente. had been shot. There were many banana compañeros wounded. Oscar Humberto González Vázquez, Presente. leader of the Isabel Banana Workers Union, Citrabi, was assassinated. He was shot 35 times. Miguel Ángel González Ramírez, Presente. A member of the Isabel Banana Workers Union was shot to death while holding his son. Six other current or former members of that banana plantation was brutally gunned down in front of his house by armed masked assassinations, including that of Carlos Enrique Cruz Hernández. Presente. Member of the trade union of workers of banana plantations and Miguel Ángel Felipe Sagatusme. Presente. Founder and general secretary of the Finca El Real Workers Union was assassinated. The plantation produces fruit for the Bandegua Company, a subsidiary of Del Monte. According to information received by the union, the murder was carried out by a private security agent employed by the banana shooting death of Secundo Ruiz. Presente who is president of the nearby San Isidro Cooperative, discovered his parents and grandfather stabbed to death in their home in a Tenerife banana plantation, murder of Marco Tulio Ramirez, Presente. leader of the Del Monte banana workers, Victor Galvez, Presente. a well-known community leader and human rights advocate, is among the organizers who have been murdered in the banana zone of Magdalena while he was sleeping. Meanwhile, the banana was experiencing strange vicissitudes. Support your local banana dealer, pins, bananas, promotional rubber band gun. Go totally bananas with Dom DeLuise and an outrageous talking chimp on the world's wackiest safari. Going bananas, 1987. While on vacation in a fictitious African country, the young son of a U.S. senator, his guardian and their guide must stop a corrupt local. Herbie Goes Bananas, 1980. This adorable little VW helps break up a counterfeiting ring in Mexico. Banana transnationals were jockeying for position. In the new liberalized and privatized banana reality, the banana is the most perishable of all tropical products. Well, as I've been telling you, I worked on the banana plantations. North American press joked about the 100-hour soccer war between the two banana republics that claimed more than 2,000 lives. And Pablo Perez, 83, Presente. was one of the innocent victims of violence that ensued when Chiquita bought and provided support to the Guerillas in the banana zone. The story of men and women banana workers doesn't, of course, end here. Bananas and broccoli cannot be fully transformed until both women and men are made visible. A founding member of a banana workers union, Miguel Enriquez, Presente. was shot dead. Hmm. I thought that line was so significant. That's beautiful, Paul. Just totally amazing assembly and execution of this poem. Thank you. I, I skipped, you know, two or three pages swans, in the middle yeah. there just for, um, <laughs> just yeah. for time. Yeah. yeah. There's some of those words I didn't want to repeat either. You know, during my research, I obviously found a lot of like um, really grotesque language, some of which yeah. because we're talking about language being violent and being part of, an actual physical violence I wanted to include in the manuscript, but the more that I read it out loud, the more 
Like I don't, it's, I don't like repeating those either. It doesn't feel good. It no. doesn't. Yeah. Well, I, this ending on the bananas and broccoli cannot be fully transformed until both women and men are made visible. Again, this emphasis on the individual in the book is really one of the most stunning and overwhelming parts. It's really feels peopled, you know, this is a book of people um, made visible. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, while I was writing this, um, you know, we had moved to Seattle and I felt very separate from something that was a, maybe the part of me, right? Or a part of me, um, which is to say, you know, living in Seattle um, and especially being whatever part of certain academic circles, you know, I wasn't just, I wasn't seeing a lot of Latina people. Mm. Um, and, and you had missed, moved from California or? Um, no, I was still living in New York, but I mean, oh. growing up in California, I mean, that, that I grew up in a neighborhood that was minority majority. It was, um, you know, 40% Latino, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like non-Latino white people were a minority. Um, and then living in New York, it's just, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's New um, York. Yeah. So then coming to yeah. Seattle, like, I, I started to feel like an ache very deeply. Yeah. Um, and during that time I was writing this, I felt kind of the need to, to bring forth the banana poem as I thought about how banana was a representative image of my life as well um, and my family's life and, you know, their migration stories. How Um, is it part of their migration story? Well, I mean, the banana being um, like a a symbol of Ecuador. um, And my my family's Ecuadorian. Ecuadorian. Yeah. 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 Um, And so much so that it was um, until the past couple of decades when it was surpassed by oil, you know, it was the largest economic product. And mm. Ecuador is still the world's number one um, banana exporter. Um, and, uh, you know, hearing my, like, tios talk about bananas, you know, yeah. you just grow up with, like, this this kind of reverence in people's voices and also, a, like, a deep understanding of, like, what that thing means, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, there's there's a poem in this book too about like being called banana boy or whatever growing up, um, and uh, you know, so coming here, I felt kind of like this need to to say this, to say, well, look at this thing, look at me, look at look at like these people, right? Um, and as I was doing that, I was also kind of you know by trying to be around you know um, more more people. Um, more more Latina people, you know, I was volunteering more at some like um, day worker centers and other such places. Um, and I think I was kind of really slowly coming to the understanding, like, again, looking at the violence from the relative safety of my room, you know, how attached I am to this, this thing and how much a part of me it is, but also, um, you know, how separate from it that I am. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I really wanted to center other people's voices, you know, because, you know, this understanding that it wasn't about me. Um, yeah. And even though I, I felt it, it is me, it's not necessarily about me. Yeah. 
But the third section edges into the more personal and intimate um, exploration of some of these themes. Uh, it starts with another Genesis, the portrait of a woman, an immigrant who was, quote, just a kid who didn't know what a hamburger was. And when she, we see she becomes a mother who, quote, cut her native tongue to protect her kin. She says she wants her child to be more independent than herself, as if one's native tongue makes one dependent upon others for communication, and perhaps it does. Yet she simply forces the unknown speaker to scrub peeling linoleum on hands and knees. And I was interested in the contrast in this poem uh, of feeling and... Uh, understanding and trying to understand this person um and i love how the poem the ending of the poem seems to leave entirely this painful domesticity that's going on and this conformity almost and enters into what feels a little bit like myth or something a more ancient that's part of both of the speaker and this woman um i was hoping you could read the start of section three and talk a little bit about this Absolutely, I'd love to, thanks. Um, and so this section 30 is Irma, um, which is my mom's name, and then begins with Genesis. All alone here, she was just a kid who didn't know what a hamburger was, who didn't know why this brand of green dish soap spewed foam from dishwasher to peeling linoleum. She didn't know English for, I'm sorry, sir, or no, please. What she wanted was a good story to take her away. What she wanted was capable children who knew how to craft soup from the lone wishbone left over from the master's dinner plate. Her laughter clacked two stones to start a fire, kitchen rich with sweet marrow. It was winter in America, and here comes the healer cradling plump papayas, and here comes the healer threading Palo Santo smoke to stitch a wound, and here comes the healer in the crosshairs of soldiers who understand no language but fear of a god born to a state where volcanoes kiss earth like U.S. forged cluster bombs. Prostrate, she plucked dust balls from offices at daybreak. What she wanted was a good novella to drown the drum of male bosses whose firm whims knew best. Misielo, I wanted you to be more independent than me. So she cut her native tongue to protect her kin, forced me to scrub peeling linoleum on my hands and knees, handed down ass whoopings with a wooden spoon, dabbed lagañas at weepy corners of midnight. Her mother wove white bales of sable cotton to bridge her here. Her grandmother drank tortuga blood to bridge her here. She is swathed in moon glow and cerulean robes. She stands in diamond-studded skies on the fat arms of babies. Um, if, you know, the, the reader might see kind of in the other parts of the last section kind of how comical comically dramatic my mom is so I thought I wanted to end on this um you know kind of vague image of a you know the Virgen de Guadalupe on like you know this blue background standing on babies like lifted into the skies and stars <laughs> this um very kind of colorful dramatic thing yeah. um 
Well, there seems to be uh well a desire to know the mother differently and to to i think we all you know we all come to this place in our adult lives of being like oh wait a minute maybe i don't know my parents in the way that i you know we think we know them we think we have this idea of them in our heads and um and we sort of base our lives based on what we think that they thought and wanted for us and then one starts to question sometimes what they do know um it felt like the book before these poems was researching outwards into others' lives and this section felt more like it was researching one's own past um did you did you feel like you could come to your mother to ask her questions to write some of these poems? Yeah, totally. Um, and it was really wonderful to be able to do that because, yeah, I did reach this point, as you had said, where, you know, we were talking about reality with a capital R, whatever that yeah. big thing is. And, you know, part of the understanding coming from this book that it is individual um, and how the book was kind of written out of me wanting to like go to other people and shake them, like shake a reality mm. into existence, like calling, mm. calling forth a ghost yeah, for this other person to be haunted um, in the same way that people I know were haunted. Yeah. Um, God, isn't that a thing? You want somebody else to be haunted by what haunts you. Well, yeah. I, I think it's to be understood that something is here that needs to be seen. Something is here that needs to be seen. That what is a haunting, but something that needs to be seen. Not to to, to hijack your your thoughts, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's fit. Yeah. So you felt yeah, that. But something that's missing, right? Something that's yeah. missing from like from an archive, and um, that of course made me go to. Um, my, my own family and um, with like a grant that I got from the city here, um, I was able to go back to Ecuador with like a fancy camera and um, interview my tios. Um, and then I, you know, I just would call and talk to my mom a lot. Um, was she excited about... for you to go back and was that your first time? Mm. We're getting into a complicated conversation. I know, here. maybe this is too personal. No, <laughs> no, probably, this I is... Could... Yeah, what but. it's about but mm -hmm. um you know and it, it does really come to that line that you brought up she cut her native tongue to protect her kin this idea that she wanted me to to have more power more um independence than her arguably more safety which had something to do with um like removing herself from her language right mm -hmm. which is removing herself from you know um the younger part of her and me trying to kind of understand what it means for someone to try to assimilate, mm -hmm. especially to try to assimilate knowing after deep research, like all the economic histories um, of kind of like um, uh, war and US funded dictatorships and all of the things that happened between the global North and the global South that did cause migration here. And, you know, I feel like for a lot of us, you know, um, who grew up without 
like the language of our families, um, there is a kind of hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Or the feeling of something missing. But I, I don't want it to be, and I didn't want it to be like a judgment cast upon my mom either, because maybe that's right. me thinking of things from my like Western or U.S. American point of view, right? Um, right. I I need to be able to kind of understand her reality of it too. Right. Right. Which right. which is one of safety, which is one of like a little girl coming here and you know being like a woman without a language in a new mm -hmm. place and how scary that must be, especially in like, you know, the like 60s and 70s, right? Right. Um, and, you know, thinking of the violences that maybe I experienced in my life and all the things that she isn't telling me about her life as well. Like I, I need to, it's, it's a difficult thing to try to both understand that and then like not, not feel the hurt in my own life right mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so that's what I was trying to piece through with I think the last section of this book is is a kind of understanding of um movement right mm. and how movement means um maybe moving towards something but also moving away from from something important yeah you say in the poem um Nirma, the speaker says, as a child, I lived in one vocabulary. As an adult, I am who I am, minus a language. Was that in reference to her native tongue or? Yo, absolutely. Um, and I mean, as I talk about in that poem, you know, there's, um, I grew up just at a very young age, bilingual. Um, until there was a moment when um, I was asked, I was in the kitchen pulling, you know, uh, my, the, the hem of the dress of my nanny or whoever was going to be my caretaker at the time asking for pan, which means bread, right? Pan, pan. And the woman like threw up her hands. It's like, what does he want? What does he want? And, you know, oh yeah, I asked my mom actually, like, when did you kind of stop speaking Spanish to us? And she, she named that moment, which to me seems like a very profound thing. Mm. Right? And again, this desire for safety and security for your children to such a degree that you're willing to kind of erase your own, you know, something that is like That's an integral part of your sacrifice. own childhood. Yeah. Yes. I mean, well, she saw at that moment you couldn't communicate with somebody who was taking care of you. Like this like, is, this is somebody watching you and you can't communicate the fact that you need bread. Literal so, sustenance. <laughs> literal sustenance. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I can empathize with her decision-making here where she, you know, she, and at that time, nobody was like, you need to be, you know, like there wasn't like a woke culture. That's like, it's important to, you know, you know, uh, honor the traditions of the family and imbued in your kids and whatever we can do to make it more easy for the, you know, like that shit, none of that shit. Um, <laughs> Assimilation was the mode of the eighties and nineties, definitely. Yeah. Um, and that, that has changed now. And that's actually, you know, changed very much. So in my relationship with my um, three month old son too. Yeah. You've got a baby now that you can yeah. speak with. And I'm, I'm like, learning Spanish, you know, uh, my Spanish is like pretty bad, but I'm, I'm learning and I'm practicing yeah. so that I can pass on something to him that has often felt, um, incomplete in me. Yeah. And, 
you know, it's interesting to think of like the, the hierarchy of needs or whatever, because my mom was thinking very much about like food for my baby. But then, you know, 20 years after that, there's this other need that, you know, felt somehow like empty or removed in me, mm-hmm. um, which of course, you know, is at the heart of this book too, yeah. right? Me yeah. trying to like refine or reconnect to that thing. Um, God, it almost reminds me of Sharif Shanahan and it's an I conversation too, where he felt this incredible loss in terms of the conversation around the two identities in his family. And um, it's so interesting how in our poetry, well, we're so lucky. We're so lucky that we have a medium in which to explore and grapple and fill, uh, fill in um well, I, I am hesitant to say fill the hole because what, that the whole the the hole cannot be filled and and shouldn't have to be. But but that there there's that sustenance was lost. That uh, the other bread, you know. Yeah. Um, and now that you have this opportunity to build it back, both in your own practice and your own writing, um, but then in your real actual relationships with your mother and with your own son and the next generation this beautiful thing poetry in motion i loved that and i really appreciated that that talk with sharif shanahan um that that you did a couple episodes ago um you know and there was this moment that he was talking about kind of returning to the like you know um i guess quote unquote motherland um and these expectations that people had of him going back versus what you know his expectations were what he wanted um, and that definitely um, resonated deeply with me, um, you know, and especially as I was writing this too, going to Ecuador and spending time with my family and um, kind of seeing how their relationship with, you know, um, the United States and, you know, an empire was and how it was different than mine too. And remembering um, all of these uh, very different realities, trying to, I suppose be be very open to them and not look at them again. I, like I was born in the United States, right? I can't, um, and I don't want that to be seen like in myself or in my writing as like the correct mode. Um, well, I, a lot of it comes down to difference and honoring difference and finding a way to. Uh, well, that's what a lot of this conflict is about, right? With with the harming of people who are not like us. You know, it's when, you know, racism is right there uh, in intolerance of difference. Um, But even in smaller, more benign realms of uh, learning on our own, like it's okay that I'm different from parts of my family or that we've grown up with different experiences of America and um, or Ecuador and um, that the kind of fun part is like, like a negotiation of difference, you know, like Hmm. of the conversation between the differences, you know, that liminal space Hmm. um, is where all that learning comes in. And, you know, within that, I also want to recognize, you know, the immense privilege that I, you know, grew up with here too. And I try to, you know, very pointedly say this in the banana poem, um, as I read that, you know, I tried to find that line in my research, um, Hernan Bedoya, another Afro, Afro-descendant leader from Choco, you know, that, you know, um, Latin, L- Latino 
culture, Latinidad, um, it, it isn't like a monolith, right? It's this multiracial, multilingual um, right. thing with like indigenous people and, you know, um, you know, totally like people with European blood. And it's, it's complicated and complex. Um, and there's such variety within it that, you know, my mother, uh, you know, there's a line in that poem about her that, you know, the desert she crossed was on a flight, right? She flew here. Um, and that she has the, I guess, privilege or the ability to, um, you know, cut her native tongue to protect her kin too, where other people might not because assimilation is only granted to people of a certain, you know, skin tone who might be granted in or out, depending mm. on how they sound. Mm. Um, and so... Language is something that isn't visible right away. Is And the, the way that, like, race and ethnicity play into this, it's it's complicated, and it's, it's about skin tone, it's about language, it's about whatever, you know, yeah. um, like, multiple things. Um, and so part of that polyvocality for me was also recognizing that um, I guess, you know, I wanted to have so many other people's voices in here too, because I wanted people to look back at me. Um, and I, th there's this quote from, um, Susan Sontag, which says something along the lines, I may be butchering this, but, um, uh, and she's talking about photography, uh, very specifically in the growth of photography along with, um, colonialism. But, um, the other is often... Um, understood as someone to be seen, not someone like us who also sees. Mm. And so kind of I want to turn the camera around and point it back at myself, right? Mm -hmm. and totally. The, That's the first thing I thought of. Yeah, the only like, way to do this you, is to yeah. like, put their voices in there, like, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like... But, but, I, but it also made me think, don't you feel that I want to be seen feeling like I, I mm. it's something I've been struggling with understanding all this time. I want to be seen. I want to be seen, but it's like, I am being seen. I'm mm. not seeing that I'm seeing, right. I'm not, I'm not, or I'm not acknowledging being seen by certain people. Right. I hate it when I say, right. But yeah, I mean, in, in that way we other ourselves, um, instead of that real true moment of two of of well you want to be seen but you also want to see what well, well, i mean that's maybe part of the work that you know um like of therapy right um or or even right. um you know poetry has the ability to do this which is it's about like connection and it's about like looking looking deep into ourselves looking at how others see us or in this case of the book kind of looking at the voices of other people, right, speaking to us or at us and trying yeah. to like show those things. I think like, like plurality is like such an important thing for this book, but yeah. also for me, just, I, I had these like really, I've had these memories of being like a child and feeling so like hurt for whatever reasons, whatever was going on at the time. And I, uh, I read a little bit about that. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to live close to these hills in California. Um, it was actually like an old drainage ditch that was like connected 
to my house. Um, but like the drainage ditch would lead to these hills. And I kind of grew up in nature in a way that like people who grew up in my same neighborhood had no, they're like, mm. where would you see a snake? You know, where would you see like right. a, <laughs> um, a coyote? And I'm like, I see them every day. They're like right there. Um, but there was something that was like, when I felt hurt, I remember like crouching down in these really tall wild grasses and just hearing the grasses move. Mm. And there was something about that that was so calming and gave me such a sense of, of like self and purpose. But I think what it was, was recognizing that the, the plurality of those kinds of the, those voices speaking in harmony, right? Mm -hmm. As the wind blows, each piece of grass is itself a life mm -hmm. that they're all moving in the same direction, but they're moving in somewhat of a discordant, right? Discordance too, because that's what makes the sound. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to be there and to just kind of close your eyes is to like recognize, you know, the same way that somebody might, you know, feel something spiritual standing on top of a mountain or whatever, mm -hmm. that, that we are like part of a multiplicity of voices. We are something plural and we're small within that, but um, like we get to be in it. Absolutely. That's beautiful. It's the chorus that we that we stand among us and and to be poets too it's like adding your voice to a long giant anthology of poetry that is like a chorus you know and you're that you're doing your little work to rub up against those these other voices and i mean not just poets too i mean there's all these thinkers and people and beings that uh that are in conversation too that's that's beautiful paul yeah walking into a bookstore seeing my little tiny book on the shelf like yeah. it may feel overwhelming to be you know one of so many but yeah that's true it is a similar feeling i'm like well, oh but there's bianca and right there's so and kathy and like all like but even like if we're, we're all gone, we're all here together yeah 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 <laughs> but even even when we're all to dust you know it's still somehow happened we still somehow had a had these moments so that hopefulness is so strong in the book um it's so beautiful i i thank you paul for coming and talking to me about banana today and um i wish you so much good will on your next book which i hope has already begun Whew. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're, you're a baby. You have a three-month-old baby. Yeah. Don't, don't. I'm not putting the fire under you or anything. And yet, yet. I'm beating myself up so much for oh, not writing enough. Of course you, you are. Know? Yeah, yeah. You're like, if I don't write, it'll go and it'll never come back. But it will. And yeah, yeah. I know. You get at least a year. There, there are seasons for everything. I yeah. tell myself that every day. Yeah. <laughs>